Welcome to this reading of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, produced by Stillwater's Revival Books. Visit our website at www.swrb.com. Read by W.J. Mancaro. The Shorter Catechism, agreed upon by the Assembly of Divines at Westminster with the assistance of commissioners from the Church of Scotland, as a part of the covenanted uniformity in religion betwixt the churches of Christ in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, and approved Anno 1648 by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland to be a directory for catechizing such as are of weaker capacity. Question 1. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Question 2. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? Answer. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Question 3. What do the scriptures principally teach? Answer. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question 4. What is God? Answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question 5. Are there more gods than one? Answer. There is but one only, the living and true God. Question 6. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Question 7. What are the decrees of God? Answer. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby, for His own glory, He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Question 8. How doth God execute his decrees? Answer. God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Question 9. What is the work of creation? Answer. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Question 10. How did God create man? Answer. God created man male and female after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Question 11. What are God's works of providence? Answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Question 12. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? Answer. When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him, upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Answer. Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, 
fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. Question 14. What is sin? Answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Question 15. What was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? Answer. The sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. Question 16. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Answer. The covenant being made with Adam not only for himself but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Question 17. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Answer. The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Question 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? Answer. The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Question 19. What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? Answer. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer. God having, out of his mere good pleasure, from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery, and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Question 21. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Answer. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be, God and man, in two distinct natures, and one person, forever. Question 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body, and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Question 23. What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer. Christ as our Redeemer executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Question 24. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Question 25. How doth, God, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. Question 26. 
How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Question 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Answer. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Question 28. Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Answer. Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Question 29. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer. We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. Question 30. How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer. The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Question 31. What is effectual calling? Answer. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby, convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. Question 32. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? Answer. They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Question 33. What is justification? Answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Question 34. What is adoption? Answer. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Question 35. What is sanctification? Answer. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Question 36. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Answer. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, 
increase of grace and perseverance therein to the end. Question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Question 39. What is the duty which God requireth of man? Answer. The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. Question 40. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? Answer. The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Question 41. Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Answer. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Question 42. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? Answer. The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Question 43. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? Answer. The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Question 44. What doth the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? Answer. The preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all his commandments. Question 45. Which is the first commandment? Answer. The first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Question 46. What is required in the first commandment? Answer. The first commandment requireth to us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Question 47. What is forbidden in the first commandment? Answer. The first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God, and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. Question 48. What are we specially taught by these words, before me, in the first commandment? Answer. These words, before me, in the first commandment, teach us that God, who seeth all things, taketh notice of, and is much displeased with, the sin of having any other God. Question 49. Which is the second commandment? Answer. The second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under, under the earth. 
Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Question 50. What is required in the second commandment? Answer. The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Question 51. What is forbidden in the second commandment? Answer. The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Question 52. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? Answer. The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he hath to his own worship. Question 53. Which is the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Question 54. What is required in the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Question 55. What is forbidden in the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. Question 56. What is the reason annexed to the third commandment? Answer. The reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. Question 57. Which is the fourth commandment? Answer. The fourth commandment is, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Question 58. What is required in the fourth commandment? Answer. The fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day and seven to be a holy Sabbath to himself. Question 59. Which day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? Answer. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since, to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. Question 60. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? Answer. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day. 
even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Question 61. What is forbidden in the fourth commandment? Answer. The fourth commandment forbiddeth the omission or careless performance of the duties required, and the profaning of the day by idleness, or doing that which is in itself sinful, or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about our worldly employments or recreations. Question 62. What are the reasons annexed to the fourth commandment? Answer. The reasons annexed to the fourth commandment are God's allowing us six days of the week for our own employments, his challenging a special propriety in the seventh, his own example, and his blessing the Sabbath day. Question 63. Which is the fifth commandment? Answer. The fifth commandment is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Question 64. What is required in the fifth commandment? Answer. The fifth commandment requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. Question 65. What is forbidden in the fifth commandment? Answer. The fifth commandment forbiddeth the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongeth to everyone in their several places and relations. Question 66. What is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? Answer. The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity, as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good, to all such as keep this commandment. Question 67. Which is the sixth commandment? Answer. The sixth commandment is, Thou shalt not kill. Question 68. What is required in the sixth commandment? Answer. The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Question 69. What is forbidden in the sixth commandment? Answer. The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life, or the life of our neighbor unjustly, or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. Question 70. Which is the seventh commandment? Answer. The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Question 71. What is required in the seventh commandment? Answer. The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity, in heart, speech, and behavior. Question 72. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? Answer. The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Question 73. Which is the eighth commandment? Answer. The eighth commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. Question 74. What is required in the eighth commandment? Answer. The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. 
Question 75. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Answer. The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Question 76. Which is the Ninth Commandment? Answer. The Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Question 77. What is required in the Ninth Commandment? Answer. The Ninth Commandment requireth the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man, and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness-bearing. Question 78. What is forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? Answer. The Ninth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial to truth, or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Question 79. Which is the Tenth Commandment? Answer. The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Question 80. What is required in the Tenth Commandment? Answer. The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. Question 81. What is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? Answer. The Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Question 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Answer. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Question 83. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Answer. Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Question 84. What doth every sin deserve? Answer. Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. Question 85. What doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Answer. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. Question 86. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. Question 87. What is repentance unto life? Answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, 
with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Question 88. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? Answer. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Question 89. How is the word made effectual to salvation? Answer. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, and of building them up in holiness and comfort, through faith, unto salvation. Question 90. How is the word to be read and heard, that it may become effectual to salvation? Answer. That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Question 91. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? Answer. The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them, or in him that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ, and the working of his Spirit in them, that by faith receive them. Question 92. What is a sacrament? Answer. A sacrament is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Question 93. Which are the sacraments of the New Testament? Answer. The sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Question 94. What is baptism? Answer. Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, doth signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ, and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace, and our engagement to be the Lord's. Question 95. To whom is baptism to be administered? Answer. Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. Question 96. What is the Lord's Supper? Answer. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood, with all his benefits, to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Question 97. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Answer. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest, 
coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Question 98. What is prayer? Answer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Question 99. What rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? Answer. The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Question 100. What doth the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? Answer. The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. Question 101. What do we pray for in the first petition? Answer. In the first petition, which is, Hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known, and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. Question 102. What do we pray for in the second petition? Answer. In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it, and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Question 103. What do we pray for in the third petition? Answer. In the third petition, which is, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things, as the angels do in heaven. Question 104. What do we pray for in the fourth petition? Answer. In the fourth petition, which is, Give us this day our daily bread, we pray that of God's free gift we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and enjoy his blessing with them. Question 105. What do we pray for in the fifth petition? Answer. In the fifth petition, which is, And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather encouraged to ask, because by his grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Question 106. What do we pray for in the sixth petition? Answer. In the sixth petition, which is, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. Question 107. What doth the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? Answer. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teaches us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him. 
and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, Amen. Appended to the Shorter Catechism is the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed with an explanatory note by the Westminster Assembly. The Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6 Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The Creed I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord which was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.
Amen. There is a note on the statement, He descended into hell, which reads, i.e., continued in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day. The assembly adds, So much of every question, both in the larger and shorter catechism, is repeated in the answer, as maketh every answer an entire proposition or sentence in itself. To the end, the learner may further improve it upon all occasions for his increase in knowledge and piety, even out of the course of catechizing as well as in it. And albeit the substance of the doctrine comprised in that abridgment, commonly called the Apostles' Creed, be fully set forth in each of the catechisms, so there is no necessity of inserting the creed itself, yet it is here annexed, not as though it were composed by the Apostles, or ought to be esteemed canonical scripture as the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, much less a prayer as ignorant people have been apt to make both it and the Decalogue, but because it is a brief sum of the Christian faith, agreeable to the Word of God and anciently received in the churches of Christ. This from the Acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland, page 93, republished by Stillwater's Revival Books. July, Session 21, 1648. Whosoever brings in any opinion or practice in this Kirk contrary to the Confession of Faith, Directory for Worship, or Presbyterian Government, may be justly esteemed to be opening the door to schism and sects. And therefore all depravers and misconstructors of the proceedings of the Kirk judicatories, especially the General Assembly, would take heed lest making a breach upon the walls of Jerusalem, they make a patent way for sectaries to enter. The Solemn League and Covenant for Reformation and Defense of Religion, the Honor and Happiness of the King, and the Peace and Safety of the Three Kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, taken and subscribed several times by King Charles II and by all ranks in the said Three Kingdoms. Jeremiah 1.5 Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Proverbs 25.5 Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Second Chronicles 15.15 And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart. Galatians 3.15 Though it be but a man's covenant, Yet, if it be confirmed by an oath, no man disannulleth, disannulleth or addeth thereto. The Solemn League and Covenant for Reformation and Defense of Religion, the Honor and Happiness of the King, and the Peace and Safety of the Three Kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, agreed upon by commissioners from the Parliament and Assembly of Divines in England, with commissioners of the Convention of Estates and General Assembly in Scotland approved by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and by both Houses of Parliament and Assemblies of Divines in England and taken and subscribed by them Anno 1643, and thereafter by the said authority taken and subscribed by all ranks in Scotland and England the same year, and ratified by Act of the Parliament of Scotland Anno 1644, and again renewed in Scotland with an acknowledgment of sins and engagement to duties by all ranks, Anno 1648, and by Parliament, 1649, and taken and subscribed by King Charles II at Spey, June 23, 1650, 
and at Scone, January 1, 1651. We noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel, and commons of all sorts, in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, by the providence of God, living under one king, and being of one reformed religion, having before our eyes the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the honor and happiness of the king's majesty and his posterity, and the true public liberty, safety, and peace of the kingdoms, wherein everyone's private condition is included. And calling to mind the treacherous and bloody plots, conspiracies, attempts, and practices of the enemies of God against the true religion and professors thereof in all places, especially in these three kingdoms, ever since the reformation of religion, and how much their rage, power, and presumption are of late, and at this time increased and exercised, whereof the deplorable state of the church and kingdom of Ireland, the distressed estate of the church and kingdom of England, and the dangerous estate of the church and kingdom of Scotland, are present and public testimonies. We have now at last, after other means of supplication, remonstrance, protestation, and sufferings, for the preservation of ourselves and our religion from utter ruin and destruction, according to the commendable practice of these kingdoms in former times, and the example of God's people in other nations, after mature deliberation, resolved and determined to enter into a mutual and solemn league and covenant, wherein we all subscribe, and each one of us for himself, with our hands lifted up to the Most High God, do swear that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the Word of God, and the example of the best reformed churches, and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God and the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship and catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may, as brethren, live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. 2. That we shall in like manner without respect of persons endeavor the extirpation of popery, prelacy, that is, church government by archbishops, bishops, their chancellors and commissaries, deans, deans and chapters, archdeacons, and all other ecclesiastical officers depending on that hierarchy, superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, and whatsoever shall be found to be contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness, lest we partake in other men's sins, and thereby be in danger to receive of their plagues, and that the Lord may be one, and his name one, in the three kingdoms. 3. We shall, with the same sincerity, reality, and constancy in our several avocations, endeavor, with our estates and lives, mutually to preserve the rights and privileges of the parliaments and the liberties of the kingdoms, and to preserve and defend the king's majesty's person and authority in the preservation and defense of the true religion and liberties of the kingdoms, that the world may bear witness with our consciences of our loyalty, and that we have no thoughts or intentions to diminish his majesty's just power and greatness.
4. We shall also with all faithfulness endeavor the discovery of all such as have been or shall be incendiaries, malignants, or evil instruments by hindering the reformation of religion, dividing the king from his people, or one of the kingdoms from another, or making any faction or parties amongst the people contrary to this league and covenant, that they may be brought to public trial and receive condign punishment, as the degree of their offenses shall require or deserve, or the supreme judicatories of both kingdoms respectively, or others having power from them for that effect shall judge convenient. 5. And whereas the happiness of a blessed peace between these kingdoms, denied in former times to our progenitors, is, by the good providence of God, granted unto us, and hath been lately concluded and settled by both parliaments, we shall, each one of us, according to our place and interest, endeavor that they may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity, and that justice may be done upon the willful opposers thereof in manner expressed in the preceding article. 6. We shall also, according to our places and callings, in this common cause of religion, liberty, and peace of the kingdoms, assist and defend all those that enter into this league and covenant in the maintaining and pursuing thereof, and shall not suffer ourselves directly or indirectly by whatsoever combination, persuasion, or terror to be divided and withdrawn from this blessed union and conjunction, whether to make defection to the contrary part, or to give ourselves to a detestable indifference or neutrality in this cause, which so much concerneth the glory of God, the good of the kingdom, and honor of the king, but shall all the days of our lives zealously and constantly continue therein against all opposition, and promote the same according to our power against all lets and impediments whatsoever. And what we are not able ourselves to suppress or overcome, we shall reveal and make known that it may be timely prevented or removed, all which we shall do as in the sight of God. And because these kingdoms are guilty of many sins and provocations against God and His Son Jesus Christ, as is too manifest by our present distresses and dangers, the fruits thereof, we profess and declare before God and the world our unfeigned desire to be humbled for our own sins and for the sins of these kingdoms, especially that we have not as we ought valued the inestimable benefit of the gospel, that we have not labored for the purity and power thereof, and that we have not endeavored to receive Christ in our hearts, nor to walk worthy of Him in our lives, which are the causes of other sins and transgressions so much abounding amongst us. And our true and unfeigned purpose, desire, and endeavor for ourselves and all others under our power and charge, both in public and in private, in all duties we owe to God and man to amend our lives, and each one to go before another in the example of a real reformation, that the Lord may turn away his wrath and heavy indignation, and establish these churches and kingdoms in truth and peace. And this covenant we make in the presence of Almighty God, the searcher of all hearts, with a true intention to perform the same, as we shall answer at that great day when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. 
most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end, and to bless our desires and proceedings with such success as may be deliverance and safety to his people, and encouragement to other Christian churches groaning under or in danger of the yoke of anti-Christian tyranny, to join in the same or like association and covenant to the glory of God, the enlargement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and the peace and tranquility of Christian kingdoms and commonwealths. The Adopting Act from the Assembly at Edinburgh, August 27, 1647, Session 23, Act Approving the Confession of Faith. A confession of faith for the Kirks of God and the three kingdoms being the chiefest part of that uniformity in religion which, by the solemn league and covenant, we are bound to endeavor. And there being, accordingly, a confession of faith agreed upon by the Assembly of Divines sitting at Westminster, with the assistance of commissioners from the Kirk of Scotland, which confession was sent from our commissioners at London to the commissioners of the Kirk met at Edinburgh in January last and hath been in this assembly twice publicly read over, examined, and considered, copies thereof being also printed, that it might be particularly perused by all the members of this assembly, unto whom frequent intimation was publicly made, to put in their doubts and objections, if they had any, and the said confession being, upon due examination thereof, found by the assembly to be most agreeable to the word of God, and in nothing contrary to the received doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of this kirk. And lastly, it being so necessary and so much longed for that the said confession be, with all possible diligence and expedition, approved and established in both kingdoms as a principal part of the intended uniformity in religion, and as a special means for the more effectual suppressing of the many dangerous errors and heresies of these times. The General Assembly doth therefore, after mature deliberation, agree unto and approve the said confession as to the truth of the matter, judging it to be most orthodox and grounded upon the word of God, and also as to the point of uniformity, agreeing for our part that it be a common confession of faith for the three kingdoms. The assembly doth also bless the Lord and thankfully acknowledge his great mercy in that so excellent a confession of faith is prepared and thus far agreed upon in both kingdoms, which we look upon as a great strengthening of the true reformed religion against the common enemies thereof. But, lest our intention and meaning be in some particulars misunderstood, it is hereby expressly declared and provided that the not mentioning in this confession, the several sorts of ecclesiastical officers and assemblies shall be no prejudice to the truth of Christ in these particulars to be expressed fully in the directory of government. It is further declared that the assembly understandeth some parts of the second article of the 31 chapter only of Kirk's not settled or constituted in point of government and that although in such kirks a synod of ministers and other fit persons may be called by the magistrate's authority and nomination, without any other call, to consult and advise with about matters of religion, and although likewise the ministers of Christ, without delegation from their churches, may of themselves and by virtue of their office meet together synodically in such kirks not yet constituted, 
Yet neither of these ought to be done in Kirk's constituted and settled, it being always free to the magistrate to advise with synods of ministers and ruling elders, meeting upon delegation from their churches, either ordinarily or being indicted by his authority occasionally and in pro renata, it being also free to assemble, assemble together synodically, as well pro renata as at the ordinary times, upon delegation from the churches, by the intrinsical power received from Christ, as often as it is necessary for the good of the church so to assemble, in case the magistrate, to the detriment of the church, withhold or deny his consent, the necessity of occasional assemblies being first remonstrate un, unto him by humble supplication. The Confession of Faith of the Kirk of Scotland or the National Covenant. Joshua 24.25 So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. 2 Kings 11.17 And Jehodiah made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people, between the king also and the people. Isaiah 44.5 one shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. The National Covenant, or Confession of Faith, subscribed at first by the King's Majesty and his household in the year 1580, Thereafter, by persons of all ranks in the year 1581, by ordinance of the Lords of Secret Council and Acts of the General Assembly, subscribed again by all sorts of persons in the year 1590 by a new ordinance of council at the desire of the General Assembly, with a general bond for the maintaining of the true Christian religion and the king's person, and together with a resolution and promise for the causes after expressed to maintain the true religion, and the King's Majesty, according to the foresaid confession and acts of Parliament, subscribed by barons, nobles, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons in the year 1638, approved by the General Assembly 1638 and 1639, and subscribed again by persons of all ranks and qualities in the year 1639, by an ordinance of council upon the supplication of the General Assembly, an act of the General Assembly, ratified by an Act of Parliament, 1640, and subscribed by King Charles II at Spey, June 23, 1650, and Scone, January 1, 1651. We all and every one of us underwritten protest that, after long and due examination of our own consciences in matters of true and false religion, we are now thoroughly resolved in the truth by the word and spirit of God. And therefore, we believe with our hearts, confess with our mouths, subscribe with our hands, and constantly affirm before God and the whole world that this only is the true Christian faith and religion, pleasing God and bringing salvation to man, which now is, by the mercy of God, revealed to the world by the preaching of the blessed evangel and is received, believed, and defended by many and sundry notable Kirks and realms, but chiefly by the Kirk of Scotland, 
the king's majesty, and three estates of this realm as God's eternal truth and only ground of our salvation, as, more particularly, is expressed in the confession of our faith, established and publicly confirmed by sundry acts of parliaments, and now of a long time hath been openly professed by the king's majesty and whole body of this realm, both in burg and land. To the which confession and form of religion we willingly agree in our conscience in all points, as unto God's undoubted truth and verity, grounded only upon his written word. And therefore we abhor and detest all contrary religion and doctrine, but chiefly all kind of papistry in general and particular heads, even as they are now damned and confuted by the word of God and Kirk of Scotland. But, in special, we detest and refuse the usurped authority of that Roman Antichrist upon the scriptures of God, upon the Kirk, the civil magistrate, and consciences of men, all his tyrannous laws made upon indifferent things against our Christian liberty, his erroneous doctrine against the sufficiency of the written word, the perfection of the law, the office of Christ and his blessed evangel his corrupted doctrine concerning original sin, our natural inability and rebellion to God's law, our justification by faith only, our imperfect sanctification and obedience to the law, the nature, number, and use of the holy sacraments, his five bastard sacraments with all his rites, ceremonies, and false doctrine added to the ministration of the true sacraments, without the word of God, his cruel judgment against infants departing without the sacrament, his absolute necessity of baptism, his blasphemous opinion of transubstantiation or real presence of Christ's body in the elements and receiving of the same by the wicked or bodies of men, his dispensations with solemn oaths, perjuries, and degrees of marriage forbidden in the word, his cruelty against the innocent divorced, his devilish mass, his blasphemous priesthood, his profane sacrifice for sins of the dead and the quick, his canonization of men, calling upon angels or saints departed, worshipping of imagery, relics, and crosses, dedicating of kirks, altars, days, vows to creatures, his purgatory, prayers for the dead, praying or speaking in a strange language with his processions and blasphemous litany and multitude of advocates or mediators, his manifold orders, auricular confession, his desperate and uncertain repentance, his general and doubtsome faith, his satisfaction of men for their sins, his justification by works, opus utteratum, works of supererogation, merits, pardons, peregrinations, and stations. His holy water, baptizing of bells, conjuring of spirits, crossing, signing, anointing, conjuring, hallowing of God's good creatures, with the superstitious opinion joined therewith his worldly monarchy and wicked hierarchy, 
his three solemn vows with all his shavelings of sundry sorts. His erroneous and bloody decrees made a trent with all the subscribers or approvers of that cruel and bloody band conjured against the Kirk of God. And finally, we detest all his vain allegories, rites, signs, and traditions brought in the Kirk without or against the word of God and doctrine of this true reformed Kirk, to the which we join ourselves willingly in doctrine, faith, religion, discipline, and use of the holy sacraments as lively members of the same in Christ our head, promising and swearing by the great name of the Lord our God that we shall continue in the obedience of the doctrine and discipline of this Kirk and shall defend the same according to our vocation and power all the days of our lives, under the pains contained in the law and danger both of body and soul in the day of God's fearful judgment. And seeing that many are stirred up by Satan and that Roman Antichrist to promise, swear, subscribe, and for a time use the holy sacraments in the Kirk deceitfully against their own conscience, minding hereby first, under the external cloak of religion, to corrupt and subvert secretly God's true religion within the Kirk, and afterward, when time may serve, to become open enemies and persecutors of the same, under vain hope of the Pope's dispensation, devised against the word of God, to his greater confusion, and their double condemnation in the day of the Lord Jesus. We, therefore, willing to take away all suspicion of hypocrisy and of such double dealing with God and his Kirk, protest and call the searcher of all hearts for witness that our minds and hearts do fully agree with this our confession, promise, oath, and subscription, so that we are not moved with any worldly respect, but are persuaded only in our conscience, through the knowledge and love of God's true religion imprinted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, as we shall answer to Him in the day when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. And because we perceive that the quietness and stability of our religion in Kirk doth depend upon the safety and good behavior of the King's Majesty as upon a comfortable instrument of God's mercy granted to this country for the maintaining of His Kirk, administration of justice amongst us, we protest and promise with all our hearts, under the same oath, handwrit, and pains, that we shall defend his person and authority with our goods, bodies, and lives in the defense of Christ, his evangel, liberties of our country, ministration of justice, and punishment of iniquity against all enemies within this realm or without, as we desire our God to be a strong and merciful defender to us in the day of our death and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory eternally. Amen. The National Confession continues with a recitation of numerous acts of Parliament which will not be included on this tape. Uh, we begin now with the section that follows that. In obedience to the commandment of God, conformed to the practice of the godly in former times, and according to the laudable examples of our worldly and religious progenitors, 
and of many yet living amongst us, which was warranted also by act of council, commanding a general ban to be made and subscribed by his majesty's subjects of all ranks, for two causes. One was for defending the true religion, as it was then reformed, and is expressed in the confession of faith above written, and a former large confession established by sundry acts of lawful general assemblies and of parliaments, unto which it hath relation set down in public catechisms, and which hath been for many years, with a blessing from heaven, preached and professed in this Kirkin kingdom as God's undoubted truth, grounded only upon his written word. The other cause was for maintaining the king's majesty, his person and estate, the true worship of God and the king's authority being so straitly joined as that they had the same friends and common enemies, and did stand and fall together. And finally, being convinced in our minds and confessing with our mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the foresaid national oath and subscription inviolable. We noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons under subscribing, considering diverse times before, and especially at this time, the danger of the true reformed religion, of the king's honor, and of the public peace of the kingdom, by the manifold innovations and evils generally contained and particularly mentioned in our late supplications, complaints, and protestations, do hereby profess and before God, his angels, and the world solemnly declare that with our whole heart we agree and resolve all the days of our life constantly to adhere unto and to defend the foresaid true religion and forbearing the practice of all innovations already introduced in the matters of the public worship of God or approbation of the corruptions of the public government of the Kirk or civil places and power of Kirkmen till they be tried and allowed in free assemblies and parliament to labor by all means lawful to recover the purity and liberty of the gospel as it was established and professed before the foresaid novations. And because after due examination we plainly perceive and undoubtedly believe that the innovations and evils contained in our supplications, complaints, and protestations have no warrant of the word of God, are contrary to the articles of the foresaid confession, to the intention and meaning of the blessed reformers of religion in this land, to the above-written acts of Parliament, and do sensibly tend to the re-establishing of the popish religion and tyranny, and to the subversion and ruin of the true reformed religion, and of our liberties, laws, and estates. We also declare that the foresaid confessions are to be interpreted and ought to be understood of the foresaid novations and evils no less than if every one of them had been expressed in the foresaid confessions, and that we are obliged to detest and abhor them, amongst other particular heads of papistry abjured therein. And therefore, from the knowledge and conscience of our duty to God, to our king and country, without any worldly respect or inducement, so far as human infirmity will suffer, Wishing a further measure of the grace of God for this effect, we promise and swear by the great name of the Lord our God to continue in the profession and obedience of the foresaid religion, and that we shall defend the same and resist all those contrary errors and corruptions according to our vocation and to the uttermost of that power that God hath put in our hands all the days of our life. And in like manner, with the same heart, 
we declare before God and men that we have no intention nor desire to attempt anything that may turn to the dishonor of God or to the diminution of the king's greatness and authority. But on the contrary, we promise and swear that we shall to the uttermost of our power, with our means and lives, stand to the defense of our dread sovereign, the king's majesty, his person and authority, in the defense and preservation of the foresaid true religion, liberties, and laws of the kingdom, as also to the mutual defense and assistance every one of us of another, in the same cause of maintaining the true religion and his majesty's authority, with our best counsel, our bodies, means, and whole power, against all sorts of persons whatsoever. So that whatsoever shall be done to the least of us for that cause shall be taken as done to us all in general, and to every one of us in particular and that we shall neither directly nor indirectly suffer ourselves to be divided or withdrawn by whatsoever suggestion, combination, allurement, or terror from this blessed and loyal conjunction, nor shall cast in any let or impediment that may stay or hinder any such resolution as by common consent shall be found to conduce for so good ends, but on the contrary shall by all lawful means labor to further and promote the same, and if any such dangerous and divisive motion be made to us by word or writ, we and every one of us shall either suppress it, or if need be, shall incontinent make the same known, that it may be timiously obviated. Neither do we fear the foul aspersions of rebellion, combination, or what else our adversaries from their craft and malice would put upon us, seeing what we do is so well warranted, and ariseth from an unfeigned desire to maintain the true worship of God, the majesty of our King, and the peace of the kingdom, for the common happiness of ourselves and our posterity. And because we cannot look for a blessing from God upon our proceedings, except with our profession and subscription we join such a life and conversation as beseemeth Christians who have renewed their covenant with God, we therefore faithfully promise for ourselves, our followers, and all others under us, both in public and in our particular families and personal carriage, to endeavor to keep ourselves within the bounds of Christian liberty, and to be good examples to others of all godliness, soberness, and righteousness, and of every duty we owe to God and man. And that this our union and conjunction may be observed without violation, we call the living God, the searcher of our hearts, to witness, who knoweth this to be our sincere desire and unfeigned resolution, as we shall answer to Jesus Christ in the great day, and under the pain of God's everlasting wrath, and of infamy and loss of all honor and respect in this world, most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end, and to bless our desires and proceedings with a happy success, that religion and righteousness may flourish in the land to the glory of God, the honor of our King, and peace and comfort of us all. In witness whereof, we have subscribed with our hands all the premises. The article of this covenant, which was at the first subscription referred to the determination of the General Assembly, being now determined, and thereby the five articles of Perth, the government of the Kirk by bishops, and the civil places and power of Kirkmen, 
upon the reasons and grounds contained in the acts of the General Assembly declared to be unlawful within this Kirk, we subscribe according to the determination aforesaid. Now some quotes from the Acts of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. This on occasional hearing and keeping familiar company with malignant, sectarian, and excommunicated persons. From the Acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland, 1638-1649, page 51, all of which published by Stillwater's Revival Books. The Assembly alloweth this article, anent frequenting with excommunicated persons. The Assembly ordaineth at the Act of Edinburgh, March 5, 1569, Session 10, to wit, that these who will not forbear the company of excommunicated persons after due admonition be excommunicated themselves. August 4, Session 10, 1641, Acts Against Impiety and Schism. Doth charge all the ministers and members of this Kirk whom they do represent, that according to their several places and vocations, they endeavor to suppress all impiety and mocking of religious exercises, especially of such as put foul aspersions and factitious and odious names upon the godly. And upon the other part, that in fear of God they beware and spiritually wise that under the name and pretext of religious exercise, other ways lawful and necessary, they fall not into the foresaid abuses, especially that they eschew all meetings which are apt to breed error, scandal, schism, neglect of duties or particular callings, and such other evils as are the works not of the spirit, but of the flesh, and are contrary to truth and peace and that the presbyteries and synods have a care to take order with such as transgress the one way or the other. July 25, Session 14, 1648 It was necessary that the popish, prelatical, and malignant party be declared enemies to the cause upon the one hand, as well as sectaries upon the other, and that all associations, either in forces or councils with the former, as well as the latter, be avoided. July, Session 21, 1648. Whosoever brings in any opinion or practice in this Kirk contrary to the confession of faith, directory for worship, or Presbyterian government, may be justly esteemed to be opening the door to schism and sects. And therefore, all depravers and misconstruers of the proceedings of the Kirk judicatories, especially the General Assembly, would take heed, lest making a breach upon the walls of Jerusalem they make a patent way for sectaries to enter. July, Session 21, 1648. Besides the former, these also are marks of a sectary. If any command or recommend to others or spread and divulge the erroneous books of sectaries, if any allow, avow, or use conventicles or private meetings forbidden by the Acts of General Assembly 1641 and 1647 last passed, if any be unwilling and decline to reckon sectaries among the enemies of the covenant from whom danger is to be apprehended. July Session 21, 1648 That they beware of all things which may ensnare their consciences as evil counsel, evil company, false informations. 
August 10, Session 38, 1648 Let the Presbyteries take special notice of ministers who do converse frequently and familiarly with malignants and with scandalous and profane persons, especially such as belong to other parishes. Overtures concerning papists, their children, and excommunicate persons, 1648, again from the Acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland. Because persons addicted to idolatry will use all means for their own hardening in their superstitious and idolatrous way, even within the country, therefore all known papists or persons suspect of popery upon probable grounds are to find caution before their presbyteries, for their abstinence from Mass, and from the company of all Jesuits and priests, according to the second overture against papists, made Anno 1642. July 27, Session 27, 1649. But it is without controversy that that spirit which has acted in the courses and councils of these who have retarded and obstructed the work of the covenant, forced the Parliament, murdered the King, changed the civil government, and established a vast toleration in religion, cannot be the spirit of righteousness and holiness, because it teaches not men to live godly and righteously, but draws them aside into error, and makes them to bring forth the bitter fruits of impiety and iniquity, and therefore ought to be avoided. And not only are such of our nation as travel in our neighbor land to take heed unto themselves, but these also who live at home especially in those places where sectaries, upon pretext of merchandise and other civil employments, ordinarily traffic and converse. July 27, Session 27, 1649 Yet it cannot be unseasonable to warn them to take heed of temptations, and to beware of snares, that they be not drawn to indifference or neutrality in the cause of God, much less unto connivance at or compliance with the courses and designs of malignants or sectaries, but to stick closely by the same, and to be zealous against all the enemies and adversaries thereof. July 27, Session 27, 1649, And it is unto us a sure word of promise, that whosoever shall associate themselves, or take counsel together, or gird themselves against God and his work, shall be broken in pieces. Acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland on Contradictory Oaths The confession of faith interpreted to a contrary meaning, and subscribed to, is a contradictory oath, which is sinful and censurable. December 20, Session 26, 1638, concerning the subscribing of the Confession of Faith lately subscribed by His Majesty's Commissioner and urged to be subscribed by others. And in the meantime, lest any should fall under the danger of a contradictory oath and bring the wrath of God upon themselves in the land for the abuse of His name and covenant, the assembly, by their ecclesiastical authority, prohibits and discharges that no member of this kirk swear or subscribe the said confession so far rested to a contrary meaning, under pain of all ecclesiastical censure. Again, from the Acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland, 
Oaths and bans contradicting the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant are sinful and censurable. July 28, Session 18, 1648. Act and declaration against the Act of Parliament and Committee of Estates ordained to be subscribed to the 10th and 12th of June, and against all new oaths or bans in the common cause imposed without the consent of the Church. And therefore the General Assembly, professing in all tender respect to the high and honorable Court of Parliament and Committee of Estates, but finding a straighter tie of God lying upon their consciences, that they be not found unfaithful watchmen and betrayers of the souls of those committed to their charge, do unanimously declare the foresaid subscription to be unlawful and sinful, and do warn, and in the name of the Lord charge all the members of this kirk to forbear the subscribing of the said act and declaration, much more the urging of the subscription thereof, as they would not incur the wrath of God and the censures of the kirk, and considering how necessary it is that according to the eighth desire of the commissioners of the assembly to the parliament, the Kirk might have the same interest in any new oaths in this cause as they had in the Solemn League and Covenant. And what dangers of contradictory oaths, perjuries, and snares to men's consciences may fall out otherwise. Therefore they likewise enjoin all the members of this Kirk to forbear the swearing, subscribing, or pressing of any new oaths or bans in this cause without advice and concurrence of the Kirk, especially any negative oaths or bans which may in any way limit or restrain them in the duties whereunto they are obliged by national or solemn league and covenant, and that with certification as aforesaid, and such have all, as have already pressed or subscribed the foresaid act and declaration the General Assembly doth hereby exhort then most earnestly in the bowels of Christ to repent of that defection. July Session 21, 1648 That they beware of all things which may ensnare their consciences as evil counsel, evil company, false information, rash promises, and especially that they beware taking any oaths, subscribing any bonds which may relate to the covenant and cause of God, unless such oaths and bonds be approved by the General Assembly or their commissioners for the public affairs of the Kirk. An example of excommunication for obstinate maintaining of oaths contrary, contradictory to the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant. June 13, Session 10, 1648. Ordinance for Excommunication of the Earl of Seaford. The General Assembly, having taken to their serious consideration that perfidious band made and contrived lately in the North under the name of a humble remonstrance against our National Covenant and the League and Covenant of the Three Kingdoms, which tends to the making of division and fomenting of jealousy within this and between both kingdoms, to the prolonging of these unnatural wars, to the impending of the intended uniformity of religion, and to the subversion of all the happy ends of our covenants, and finding that George Earl of Seaford has not only most perfidiously himself subscribed the said wicked band, contrary to his solemn oath in the covenants aforesaid, therefore the assembly moved with the zeal of God do without a contrary voice discern and ordain the said George Earl of Seaford 
to be summarily excommunicate and declared to be one whom Christ commanded to be held by all and every one of the faithful as an ethnic and a publican. Selected readings from the Acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland on Covenanting and Covenants. The Blessing of God upon Covenanting, January 23, Session 2, 1645. And when we consider how the Lord hath carried on his work here at the first taking of the covenant, and since, against much learning and contradiction, against much policy, power, and all sorts of opposition, such as Reformation used to encounter, we are ravished with admiration at the right hand of the Almighty. On the Perpetual Obligation of the Covenant, July, Session 21, 1648. To remember that as the violation of the covenant by some in England doth not set us free from the observation thereof, and as no laws nor authority on earth can absolve us from so solemn an obligation to the Most High God, which not only has been professed by this Kirk, but in a petition in the City of London, and in public testimonies of many of the ministry in England. So we are not acquitted and assoiled from the obligation of our solemn covenant because of the troubles and confusions of the times, but that in the worst of times all those duties whereunto by covenant we oblige ourselves do still lie upon us, for we have sworn and must perform it concerning that cause and covenant wherein we solemnly engaged that we shall, all the days of our lives, zealously and constantly continue therein against all opposition, and promote the same according to our power against all lets and impediments whatsoever. And if against all lets and impediments whatsoever, then the altering of the way of opposition, or of the kinds of impediments, doth not alter the nature or tie of the covenant but we are obliged to all the duties therein contained. August 6, 1649 Although there were none in the one kingdom who did adhere to the covenant, yet thereby were not the other kingdom, nor any person in either of them, absolved from the bond thereof, since in it we have not only sworn by the Lord, but also covenanted with him. It is not the failing of one or more that can absolve the other, from their duty or tie to him. Besides, the duties therein contained being in themselves lawful, and the grounds of our tie thereunto moral, moral, though the other do forget their duty, yet doth not their defection free us from that obligation which lies upon us by the covenant in our places and stations. And the covenant, being intended and entered into by these kingdoms, as one of the best means of steadfastness for guarding against declining times, it were strange to say that the backsliding of any should absolve others from the tie thereof, especially seeing our engagement therein is not only national, but also personal, everyone with uplifted hands swearing by himself, as it is evident by the tenor of the covenant. From these and other important reasons, it may appear that all these kingdoms joining together to abolish that oath by law, yet could they not dispense therewith. Much less can any one of them, or any part in either of them, do the same. The dispensing with oaths have hitherto been abhorred as anti-Christian, and never practiced and avowed by any, but by that man of sin. Therefore, those who take the same upon them, as they join with him in his sin, so must they expect to
to partake of his plagues. July 27, Session 27, 1649 Albeit the League and Covenant be despised by the prevailing party in England, and the work of uniformity through retardments and obstructions that have come in the way be almost forgotten in these kingdoms, yet the obligation of that covenant is perpetual, and all the duties contained therein are constantly to be minded and prosecuted by every one of us and our posterity. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.